Hi, my name is Harris. I'm one of your podcast hosts. I'm also a lawyer at Treadstone Law. For most Canadians buying, selling, or refinancing real estate, a lawyer is the last thing on their mind. That's unfortunate because lawyers play a vital role in the process. But what choices do Canadians have? Lawyers can be very expensive. Well, Treadstone Law offers resources to Canadians so they have access to the information they need. Whether you sign up for a live workshop or a mailing list, we cover topics to help you make informed decisions and avoid costly mistakes. It's advice you can start using today, and best of all, it's free. Visit treadstonelaw.ca forward slash MAS offer or click the link below to get access right now. If you're looking to retain Treadstone Law, it's never been easier. Our entire process is online. From completing the retainer agreement to your signing appointment, everything is done from the comfort of your own home. We're your digital lawyers. The best part of it is that you don't pay anything when you're retaining our firm. Visit treadstonelaw.ca forward slash MAS offer or click on the link below to retain us right now. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome everyone to another episode of Hustle and Grit. Today on our episode, we have a special guest, Scott Brown. Scott is a co-owner of Ultimate Mortgage Group, which does over a billion a year in funding. He's been a mortgage broker for over 21 years and is one of the top 75 brokers in Canada. Scott personally does over 150 million uh, in mortgages a year himself. Those are some very impressive numbers. Welcome to the podcast, Scott. Thanks, Harris. Nice to be here. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. So those numbers, I feel like most Canadians, most ordinary people can't fathom um, what it is that a billion dollars really is. Um, mm-hmm. So just kick it off. What made you kind of become a mortgage broker? What got you interested in the field? Because it seems like it's been your career long um, or life or at your professional um, career long kind of endeavor. Yeah, well, I started at CIBC Bank in telephone banking. So back in the day, I was the guy that you called to pay your bills through the telephone banking. And we were encouraged to try to sell products when we see like a client with large balances in their account, we'd be encouraged to try to sell them a GIC or encourage them to try to get, you know, secured line of credit, or if anyone asked about mortgages, we were encouraged to send them over to the credit department. So when they realized that I was good at kind of upselling people, they moved me to the credit department, which is when I started being the guy taking the applications to do people's mortgages, to do people's lines of credit, et cetera. So I did that for a little bit too, and then I worked in CIBC's mortgage department. So anyone across Canada who's looking to get a mortgage virtually by phone and email would come through our department. And that's sort of where I learned the ropes. And from then on, I slowly detached from the bank and became independent. But they were a really good stepping stone in learning about everything there is about mortgages. And everything sort of progressed from there. So you kind of fell into it, but uh, was there... Was it love at first sight? Was there kind of a, a learning curve or what kind of learning curve yeah. for sure? Yeah. Um, 
back then it was probably simpler. Nowadays it's much more complicated for the average home buyer to understand all the different terminology and processes. Um, but I did like it instantly. I liked the sales aspect of things and I liked the numbers aspect of, of doing mortgages. Uh, that was appealing to me. Um, so yeah, I guess it was something that really did, like I never really decided or thought about getting out of it. And it's been 21 years and time flies. Oh, wow. So yeah, it's a, it's a long relationship. But so then what, and it seems like, you know, you had a natural talent. And and, and me, I, I feel like I speak to enough mortgage brokers. For most people, for most brokers, I feel, and everybody has their own road. It's something that is, it's a, it's not just a learning curve. It kind of affects who they are. And they, there is kind of an uphill battle there, right? What makes you like a good broker? Like what made you kind of, what made it easy for you to sell all these products to Canadians calling in with these accounts? Yeah, so when, I would say what maybe is my strong suit is my organization. I think you have to be really organized when you're getting a lot of referrals in and you need to be able to handle a client's deal and sort of know where everything is there's a lot of moving parts to getting a mortgage approved and done. Also, in addition to organization, just the drive and, you know, being able to return a client's call quickly or email quickly, I think differentiates me maybe from competition because people want things done yesterday. People are in a purchase transaction or even a refinance or transfer transaction is time limited. Yeah. So things need to get done in time. And that is something that is yeah. Just na my nature. Yeah. I think that really is a big thing. I mean, I think, and and I'm not trying to sell anybody on you, but from our conversations, right? And I look at your numbers after our few conversations, I realize, okay, you're doing really well. But from our conversations, I felt like your biggest asset, and along with everything you said, was like you were very easy to talk to, and you kind mm -hmm. of understood where I'm coming from. So mm -hmm. I was like, okay, so I can understand. I mean, it's it's a big achievement, but I can understand how that can happen because it's very difficult nowadays um, to talk to somebody and they're just kind of quiet and listening to what you're saying as opposed to kind of waiting for their turn to speak. Not to quote Fight Club, but yeah, they're they're kind of like, you know, they're just trying to say that to, you know, they're trying to sell you something. They're trying to get their, in, their own in, if that makes sense. So Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, that does make sense. Like when someone's calling me for a mortgage, it's different than me hard selling or dialing yeah. out and doing random. So the people come to me with a need. Yeah. It's my job to sort through that need to make sure that what they're asking for is actually something they should be getting. Because oftentimes yeah. they come to me and I'm thinking, maybe you should look at doing it this way. Or have you considered this option instead of the one you've come in? So I would say that comes with experience and but being a good listener and being good on the phone mm. and being personable are definitely skills that have done me well. Yeah. So if walk me through the process. So if I if I want to um, get a mortgage with you, what's the process like? Do I just give you a call and say, "Hey, this is what I want," and then I hang up? And, and or is yeah. it like what's what's the entire process of working with you and getting a mortgage? So. People are often referred to me by past clients or through mm -hmm. their realtor or through their lawyer or through their accountant. But 
if you know, and any everyday client, like I have people come through to me from Google, for example, I usually like to start with a phone call. I was born in the seventies. I like a good phone call. I find you get <laughs> everything out on a phone call that you need to get out. It's yeah. instead of a lot of the back and forth. Oftentimes my responses in an email will create 10 more questions. So if we can hammer that out on a phone call, I find that the client is able to really understand the process, really understand what is needed. And they're also, we come to some sort of conclusion of next steps. So oftentimes I will try to start with a phone call to introduce myself, to go through what their need is, what their want is, and then kind of progress from there, whether we do another phone call to do a pre-approval or whether, you know, on that phone call we figure out, hey, it's not a right time to do this. You should stay put with your current lender. You already have a good rate. There's no need to waste your time doing a new application. And then go from there. And then a lot of it is email back and forth. And mm. I do have support staff that help to make sure the transaction goes smoothly by collecting documents, et cetera. Yeah. And I think um, with phone calls, at least I've seen the industry changed quite a bit in the past few years where everything's kind of becoming digital. So everybody's kind of just chatting or, or on an email going back and forth. And I feel like in the beginning, um, my opinion, at least, and correct me if I'm wrong, is you're not just asking questions. It's also about building trust with the person that you're speaking to. And I think that's one of the biggest, like, especially if it's like a cold call, if they're calling you and I, I might have somebody refer me to you, but I still kind of want to get to know you and see where you are. And, and if we can, you know, like if, if you are personable, if you can really understand what I need as opposed to. And I feel like with emails, that doesn't happen. It's like you're asking questions and somebody answers and you're not really building that relationship. Agreed. Yeah, I totally agree. And like when you do an application, not everyone fits into the same box. So you're going to be asked for certain things in an application and it's oftentimes throws the client off. It's like, okay, well, this doesn't really apply to me, but it's asking me for a response. So even though I do send a digital link for applications, because mm. everyone's different. Some people really do prefer to do their yeah. own application. So I give the option to fill it out or at least start it, fill in the basics. And then I will always go through that application by phone with them, even if they filled it out digitally, just to fill in the blanks, yeah. ask clarifying questions about their income and stuff like that. For example, like if someone puts in, they make, 100,000 working for Microsoft, I want to know, are they on contract? Are they hmm. someone who's self-employed, who bills Microsoft? Are they a full-time salaried employee? Because the answers to those questions will determine what income I can use, which will therefore determine if their pre-approval is accurate. If you don't yeah. ask those questions and they've gone ahead and made an offer on a property, you're kind of, you know, you're backtracking at that point because they don't, really qualify for what they thought they qualified for so i take that part of the process very seriously yeah so it's like kind of setting up the foundation for like a good conversation mm. everybody kind of needs to do their homework so that you can have something that's kind of worth everyone's time right coming together yeah, and like, have a conversation. yeah. i want that pre-approval email to be extremely legit and valid yeah because <laughs> like, in this market you can't make an offer without removing your financing conditions. So if I'm yeah. going to put a client at risk that way, I'm going to make them do a little bit more work up front to ensure that they aren't at risk. Yeah. And I, I think, I mean, and this kind of brings me to kind of my next conversation where you have 
um about this market especially in the greater toronto area i can't really comment across ontario though prices are going up everywhere um you really need to go in with a very like confident offer um and i feel like a lot of people they don't really realize what they're getting into um if they don't have the right kind of um people or advisors behind them and so when you're looking at people come in, how, how much time do you kind of spend in figuring out pre-approvals and all of that? Is that where bulk of the work is done and then the approval is a little bit easier or is it kind of 50-50? Like how does that kind of relationship work pre-offer versus post-offer? Right. So that really depends on the client. So having done this for so many years, a lot of my clients are second, third, fourth time purchasers. So for them, the handholding isn't necessarily there, and I have a lot of their information already. So I will pre-approve them. They will understand sort of the process a lot, and a lot of less time is needed for them. At which point, if their client is someone who's a first-time homebuyer, a lot more time spent up front answering their questions about first-time homebuyer rebates, property taxes, how their payment options will be, um, and really getting them more confident so when they do find a place they can make an offer and not worry about anything so i gauge their level of knowledge sort of up front to determine mm. how much time is spent up front uh, the way i work is if i were getting you a pre-approval today harris i would get all your details plug it all in qualify you i would even collect documents i usually collect income confirmation especially because that's really where a deal can go wrong mm. I make sure that all the boxes are checked. Everything looks good. I give you your numbers and say, okay, your maximum purchase price Harris is X amount. Your closing cost will be this much. Your down payment you need to have as much is this much. Let me know when you find a place you want to buy. And that's really when we talk next is when you send me a listing and say, Harris, I want to, or Scott, I want to buy this property. Yeah. Then we're going to do another call specific to that property. Cause I know everything about you. I know your credit. I know your income, your debts, et cetera. But the major part of an approval is the property. So I want mm. to review that property with you before you make an offer. And then you can go in without a financing condition because we've done all the due diligence we need to do. Quick 10-second break. Are you finding this podcast useful? Do you want access to more resources just like this podcast? Sign up to one of our online workshops or our mailing list and we'll send all the information you need right to your inbox. Good advice is hard to come by, especially in a market like today's. Sign up by visiting treadstonelaw.ca forward slash MAS offer or click on the link below. Enjoy the rest of the podcast. So you're saying, hold on, so this is a little bit different from what mm. I hear often. So a lot of times you have people just throw in a firm offer and then they go, they're running around with a, like chickens with their heads cut off because they're trying to find financing and they're scared whether they can or can't because they don't realize you got to get approved twice once is for you and then once it's for the property but you're saying that with your clients you're going to look at their profile and then when they find a house they should send you that listing before submitting an offer so you can understand that listing is that correct yeah like i want to look at the property i want to make sure that it's a property that will be mortgageable like 99% of the yeah. time it is, but I have yeah, had clients yeah. buy a place with no kitchen. Yeah. And a bank is like, they may love <laughs> your finances, but they care. They always care about resale. That's what they care yeah. about the most. 
yeah. or if it says like renovators delight or student housing yeah. like the mls listing will tell me or prevent me from allowing you to put yourself at risk basically so yeah. i put that extra little bit of security in there and it's also a good touch point to say okay harris if you offer 1.2 and you put down 240,000, your payment's this. If you offer mm. one, two, two, five, because a lot of people think that extra, maybe 20,000, 30,000 is gonna increase their payment a lot more than it in fact does. So it honestly gives them a little bit more ammunition. So when they're in that bidding war, because I won't yeah. be there with, they'll know, okay, well, we can go to one, two, five, and the payment's only $20 extra month. Let's do it. Let's get this property that we love so much. Yeah. You know what this, and this is totally off topic or a little bit off topic. It reminds me of like, um, and there's different routes to where I got your back has come from. But one of it is like when soldiers went off, when you're going into like martial combat before there was like planes and stuff, you had, more experienced soldiers behind um, the ones that were kind of just starting off because your back is the most vulnerable and they wanted more experience there so that they felt comfortable to kind of focus in what's ahead of them. So I feel mm -hmm. like this is kind of your you really have their back in that because it is sometimes it does feel like you're going to war with these bidding bidding wars. It's called it's called a bidding war. So you need the right people behind you so that you can confidently um, actually make that decision whether they should like offer whatever amount and all that stuff. And I don't, I feel like at least a lot of the, the individuals that crossed my desk, they didn't have that. Mm -hmm. So they often panic. They'll like, they'll throw in something. What, what I see happens, the trajectory is, and this is most of the time, first time home buyers, repeat home buyers. Like you said, they're a little bit more sophisticated. They've been around the block. They kind of understand what's going on um, more, but first time home buyers, they'll get, uh, an offer rejected, rejected, rejected. Then they're like, they get fed up. They stop even looking at the house. They're more concentrating on getting the offer accepted. And so like fifth, sixth offer down, they're, they're just throwing out obscene numbers and they don't really understand whether they can afford it or not. And they're too focused on the rejection that they felt in the first few offers and trying to get this to be an acceptance. So for that, I feel like, you know, you need to have the right team behind you to have your back so that you kind of kind of go in with confidence. You're making smart decisions, because, again, like I think for most Canadians, 90 percent of Canadians, your entire wealth is in your house. And like you said, even if like, yeah, 90 percent of them are good. Um, but if that one percent you, you make a bid on that one percent of real estate that is not financeable, right? Is that a word? Mm -hmm. But yeah. if it's yeah. not <laughs> <laughs> sounds good. <laughs> they it's like it, it can ruin you, right? It's not like there's no consequences. Exactly. We you never want someone to make an offer firm on a property you can't get a mortgage on. Yeah. Like it's just a nightmare. It's just an added security. It's and oftentimes it is somewhat you know redundant mm. and unnecessary but that peace of mind is important you're talking mm. millions of dollars these days most yeah. people aren't you're not getting your five hundred thousand dollar home purchases in ontario yeah. <laughs> so, so it's off, important yeah so off the top of your head um and and the, and i know we haven't discussed this before but the, do you have any horror stories without naming names anything that you're like well that sticks out to you in your career like that's something that people should not be doing um, actually I'm pretty good because I put that extra security. So I haven't yeah. had any clients like put themselves in that position, but yeah. there's, you know, things that have happened that have, you know, lowered someone's pre-approval before they bought. 
um, is, you know, that you go get a car loan, you go get a car lease, you go mm-hmm. incur debt. If you decide, like I've had clients who are pre-approved and they're all good to go. And then, you know, a couple months later, they're like, oh, good news. We decided to start our own business. Well, that is good news. I'm happy <laughs> for you. However, we can't use your income now because we need to have two years as someone who's self-employed before we can. Mm. So although, you know, it's a great move for you and I wish you the best, it just means that that pre-approval, those figures are no longer valid and you're going to have to wait two years. Yeah. And people are surprised by that. Um, yeah. And this is why like on those pre-approval calls where you say, Scott, I found a property. Let's look at it. I always re- go through the income again. Even if we talked a week before, I'll just even touch base and say, nothing's changed in the income. Good. Moving on. Mm-hmm. Just because, you know, that is things I've seen happen. I've never had a client actually go by and that's happened. So fingers yeah. crossed, knock on wood, that that continues. Yeah. Um, but those are common mistakes that I've had or getting a car loan or lease because that payment is directly afford- directly related to your pre-approval. It'll lower your qualifying potentially. Yeah. No, I feel like, well, I mean, for most, uh, and this is why people should be getting in touch with the broker for everybody. They feel, I feel like a dollar is a dollar. It doesn't matter where it comes from when a dollar isn't a dollar, right? It really does matter where it's coming from. And that's how you're going to add up how much you're earning and what you can qualify for. It's not as simple as, well, I was earning it from the job and now I have a business. So, um, there's different risk profiles, um, Mm -hmm. which definitely, yeah. And so, as a broker, we have access to, sorry to interrupt, we have access yeah. to, I have access to like 60 lenders. So, you know, the, I do have options for those types of solutions or those types of issues. However, when you come into me and you want the best interest rate, the lowest mortgage payment, it's important for me to deliver on that. If yeah. you do become self-employed and you don't have a full two years, I have a lender that'll do that, but you'll pay for it. And you just mm. need to know whether that extra is worth it for you. Is your budget going to be totally blown by that? Or are you willing to take that higher rate for a couple of years so you are self-employed? Those type of things are like a client irritant. And for me too, like I want to know if I'm buying a home, how much it's going to cost. I don't want a surprise. No bad yeah. surprises. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, um, there's... I, I had a question here and I'm completely like uh, blanking out now. <laughs> But yeah, uh, I mean, moving on. Um, so with the market right now, and if I remember, I'm going to come back to this question because I know it was a good one. I had a feeling about this one. But uh, uh, moving on um, with uh, and, and at the time of this recording, Bank of Canada hasn't um, announced any rate hikes. We're going to um, hear them tomorrow. Um, and so there's a lot of talk. Everybody's like, it's 100 percent. Uh, guaranteed that they're going to be raising um do and uh, some people are saying no majority of the people have said that they're going to be uh raising rates what's kind of your opinion on where the bank of canada is going with the rates so we're definitely going up i think that the january meeting was more of okay everyone be prepared they're going to go up i didn't think they actually would and they didn't I think tomorrow, I think we'll see a 0.25% increase. Do, do you feel that uh, the Ukraine thing, anything like that internationally is going to disrupt um, that rate hike? I don't think this one, no. No? I think this one's long overdue and they'll do it regardless. 
but there is conflicting opinions on it. You're right, totally. Yeah. Um, but I do, I do think they'll raise it a quarter percent, and I do think they'll probably raise a quarter percent in April too. So, where do you predict the rates to be by the end of end of this year? Or um, the bank so the prime rate, rate now? Yeah. yeah, I'll just just say the bank prime because that's what people know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a two point four five right now. I think by the end of the year, it could be point seven five percent up. Okay. On the low end, 1% up on the high end. Okay. So that's a significant jump. And, mm-hmm. and I think... But it's different than... Yeah. Sorry. It's different than the what the media is saying. Like, they're saying seven rate increases. Yeah. Six rate increases. <laughs> eight. So that's where I get the most of my calls. Because once I do your mortgage, our relationship is sort of just beginning. Yeah. In the sense that, like, for those five years that I have a client in a variable or a fixed rate, they're calling me to say, hey, what do you think? Should we lock in? Should we keep our variable? Um, and yeah. that's the question I'm asked, getting asked a lot right now is, should I lock my variable rate in? And I say to ignore the media, I don't think that that many rate increases is warranted. I think that the government has to be careful about how they increase rates and by how much they want to dig us out of the uh, economy, economic conditions that we were in, not put us into a recession quickly. So it's a delicate balance. Yeah. So I only say seven, five to 1%. Yeah. I mean, I, I, when I hear seven hate rate hikes, even in the States and in Canada, that's, I feel like it's, impo- it's unprecedented. First of all, like you had it maybe in the eighties with Volcker, um, but our economy is nowhere near the same. The debts that our economies have, government debt, everything else, it's just, you can. It's not even just about, I think for a lot of people, they look at it simply from mortgage rates going up, but there's so many other factors involved that like seven like seven rate hikes is, is an insane amount. Um, exactly. But would you still, so you're saying you are still telling people, um, and this is the age old debate, between fixed and variable, are you pushing them towards um, or recommending variable or fixed then? Always variable. I've never wavered on that. Like I have clients that take fixed rates, but they always know about the variable option. My job is to educate them. Even if they come in, like a client will come in, you know, basically asking for the lowest fixed rate. My job is to at least let them know there's an alternative to that, and which I always do. But I'll always try to sell a variable rate before a fixed rate for several reasons. The first is the interest rate is lower. Yeah. Just to give you some perspective. So a fixed rate right now, or let's say, say 3.1, 3.2. A variable rate, say 1.5, 1.6. So it's almost double. Well, it is pretty much double to take a fixed rate. So I always say, why would you pay a higher interest from day one when no one can predict the future, really? Yes, there's talk of rates going up. Yes, they are going to go up because they have nowhere else to go. But that's not to say that something won't bring them down again in a year yeah. or two. Like statistically, that is what happens. Interest mm. is front loaded on a mortgage. So again, why not pay that low interest rate from day one and ride the wave up and down? Historically, you will come at ahead 80% of the time. So yeah. with those odds, I think, why take any risk doing the fixed rate? Second reason... Um, is flexibility. I see it all the time. People break up, make up, yeah. um, move <laughs> for school, move yeah, for yeah, job. Yeah, yeah. 
And in a fixed rate, you're going to pay a penalty that is in some cases three to five times higher than a variable rate. A variable interest rate penalty is always three months interest. So you can t I can tell you what your penalty will be pretty much at any point. Whereas a fixed rate penalty is based on the interest rates at the time on the term remaining. Yeah. So if you ever hear of, you know, I'm sure everyone's heard of a friend or family member, my penalty is 20000 50000 whatever it is. Those are fixed rate mortgages. So I, as someone who really never seems to finish out their own mortgage term, that's myself, I would rather be in something flexible because life will throw you curveballs and I just don't like the idea of being trapped into something. And I mean, I see it all the time because when, uh, uh, when we're refinancing, somebody comes to refinance or sell their home, we're ordering a discharge statement. The law firm has to pay out that mortgage and we've seen some stuff that's extremely like, you know, painful for me to watch when you're paying like $60,000 on a fine. And, 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 and this is when, and actually this is, brings me back to what actually we were talking about before, where it's the best rate, right? We're talking about the best rate and this is actually where I lost my train of thought. When you said okay. best rate, right? It was, it's more, the best rate is relative, right? It depends on your situation as to what your best rate is. HSBC had, I think, was it last summer they had like a fixed rate of 0.99 percent, right? Mm -hmm. But those the penalty to get out of something like that, right, is extremely high. People don't realize, like, you know, the banks are not there. Um, I'm not trying to antagonize the banks, but they're they're there to make a profit, right? I mean, they're hitting record profits, um, and and they're looking at like, okay, statistically, if I give out like a thousand mortgages, how many people are going to break early? And what are those penalties? And that is all kind of brought into um, the, their bottom line. So with uh, a lot of this fixed, I see 60,000 because people think 50,000, 40,000 often enough. You see 30, 40 is like always there, right? Um, it's like people are like, I'm not going to be the one that is going to be affected. I know that I'm going to be married for the next five years and I know I'm going to have this and I'm going to have my job, right? I'm going to have all this stuff. Um, so I know I'm going to be paying out five years and, and then this is not going to happen to me. And I hope it does. But what are the statistics behind people breaking early? Like, I feel like it's, it's a higher number than people anticipate that will get out of exit their mortgage before the end of their term. Yeah, the average five-year mortgage holder breaks it in 3.6 years. Oh, wow. So that's that's significant. So, mm -hmm. I see it all the time, and it is heartbreaking for someone to be put in that position. Um, there are alternatives. You can port a fixed-rate mortgage and blend the penalty. But a lot of times, there's a lot of restrictions on that. That if you just take a variable, you really are free. And I like that part of it. Free to to make your decisions as you choose, sell it when you want to sell it, sell it if the market's hot, sell it if the market is going down. You're not restricted by certain time frames. And you're right, there's, you know, when a client comes to me, it's always usually about rate first, but we break it down because there is different rate categories for every buyer now. And this is why it's gotten confusing since I started 20 years ago, is now you've got insured mortgages. They have different rates than insurable mortgages, which have different rates than uninsurable mortgages. So people will say, oh, I saw this rate on RateHub. That's great. It just doesn't apply to you. If you buy over a million purchase price and a 30-year amortization, your mortgage is in the highest rate category. You're not going to get those 0.99%. Yeah. 
HSBC offers and stuff. So it's really just debunking and educating the client when they come to me mm. and sort of saying, okay, based on your situation, the best rate that you can get is X for a variable or X for a fixed rate. And there's products, like you said, that have different penalty calculations. You get a slightly lower rate, but your penalty is, you know, three times, 3% of your mortgage balance or whatever. Mm. Again, people always will try to get that type of product. And when I tell them about it, they always back out when they find about those things. And I have clients that have a gotten through the whole five years without worrying about it. And clients that had no choice, but to pay that giant penalty. Yeah. But I see that. I think the stats, the majority of Canadians still go for fixed. Um, I think it's like yes. 60, 70%. I don't know. You would know the number better than I would, but it's, it's pretty high. Um, it is. And I think that's, I think there's a difference between a broker channel, like through coming through to me and going to your person at the bank. So when you, as a client are coming to a mortgage broker like myself, like we're incentivized. I don't get paid unless I close your deal. Hmm. I'm not on salary. I, it's my job to educate you, to give you a really good experience because my business depends on that. So I'm going to educate you on the different products more than the bank will. And I'm not, it's the bank is mostly sold to told to sold, told to sell fixed rates because that's what makes them the most money. So this random person at the branch is probably going to sell you a fixed rate and not really even know the intricacies of a variable. Interesting. And you're going to put your trust into them. And this is someone, you know, just making a salary. They don't necessarily care what you do. Their, their job isn't, their livelihood isn't dependent on them closing that deal. Plus they have to sell 50 other products. So they're yeah. not going to be really an expert when it comes to mortgages because they have to learn GICs, all the different bank accounts, visa cards. So when someone comes to a broker like myself, this is all we do is mortgages every day, all day long. Yeah. And because of the volumes that we've done or we do, we see every type of situation that a client could possibly get in. So I think we're a little better equipped to give advice. And I think you're seeing the variables components change because of the broker channel is educating clients more on the fixed rate yeah or uh, the variable rate i mean or like the entire process my perspective and and again i'm not like anti-bank or anything i feel like um banks do add value but at the same time the personnel are not that sophisticated because there isn't that much skin in the game and you're just kind of told uh you're giving a speech to kind of give to the clients and this is the mandate and it's in the interest of the bank and that's fine. Um, everybody works for their own interests and I don't like, I'm, and I'm not trying to say the brokers don't either, but the interests are aligned a little bit differently. Right. And I do feel that um, especially with the regulations, this is my perspective where not every bank can offer the best product to everyone who opens comes in through the door. Right. And so it's like, if your shoe size is like a 10, and the bank says, I don't got a size 10. I got a size 11 or 12. You know, let's just put that on because you can wear it at least, right? Um, whereas with brokers, you've got access to a lot of different lenders. And depending on your profile, like we've kind of talked about, you can give them that size 10 shoe size. So it's not like you're kind of putting anything on. And as long as they can walk, it's fine. Um, Agreed. But I do. Yeah, we're just, yeah. we give options too, right? Like I'm not, I, 
I deal with the big banks. So yeah. like I put a lot of mortgages with, you know, brands that you would recognize for sure. But it doesn't, I'm not uh, incentivized to choose them yeah. and I'm not biased to one. So I can say, okay, TD's really good with their variable because of ABC, whereas Scotia has a little bit more flexibility in this. Which one is best for you, Harris? Yeah. So you can ultimately decide. Whereas if you go to the branch, they're going to tell you only about that product because that's all they can sell. And even if, let's just say you don't qualify because of, you know, you just don't fit into the strict box like you were talking about that the bank has you in. With a broker, it's like, okay, well, we can't fit you into this box, but we have 60 other boxes. Let's try. Yeah. And people appreciate that. One-stop shop. They don't have to go give their information to 10 people just to get the same result. Yeah. And then it's not even that you're just trying to keep them at whatever lender. It's like you have a game plan. If you stick here for five years or four years or whatever it is, build up your credit, pay down your debts, then you can move to an A lender. It's not like you're stuck to wherever you are. It's just that you guys have... A, a view that you can plan out and map the wealth for 10, 15, 20 years, as long as your client kind of wants to. Exactly. We make a plan to get them out. Like a B lender to me is a, hopefully a temporary solution. Sometimes someone has to be in it forever and that's fine. Mm -hmm. You know that front. And sometimes it's their choice to be. Because when you're self-employed, you could choose to declare lots of income or you can choose <laughs> to put it up. Yeah. Someone's going to get your money, whether it's the government or the bank. Yeah. And that's a, um, that's a totally different conversation. But I feel like that's why self-employed individuals, they should be reach, reaching out to people like yourself and have that conversation between how much is it going to cost them to declare more income so that they can g qualify for that Scotia Bank TD mortgage versus like... And I'm not saying um, anybody should be evading taxes, but there's avoidance <laughs> schemes. You know, you legally you can minimize your tax liability. And if you minimize that, how much interest are you paying um, on some of these other lenders? Exactly. So. There's a point where it makes sense to go one route versus the other. Like on a rental property, you know, B lending with a higher interest rate isn't such a bad thing. Someone else is paying, your interest is tax deductible. Someone else is paying your mortgage. Those yeah. fees that you incur to do a B lender are part of your taxes, tax deductible. So there's situations where, you know, it just it makes sense to do this instead of the other. Yeah, no, and I, I also feel that uh, can Canadians in general are now in the past five years m leaning more and more into mortgage brokers. We're in the states, you have majority of the people who are accustomed to brokers because they kind of see the value whereas make correct me if i'm wrong canadians i'm not saying they don't right but there is a trend and i feel like that trend should continue where more and more canadians should kind of step out of that branch and go and speak to brokers because it's a lifelong relationship it's not just a, a mortgage and that's it agreed I, i've had clients that have been there for the full 20 years like yeah. multiple terms etc yeah, I think we're just a little bit behind in the U.S. I think when mortgage brokering was, you know, started, say, in the 80s, 90s, it was last resort lending. Yeah. So if none of your banks would approve you, that's where we'd go. So we were seen as your last resort. Whereas now, I think we're your first resort. Yeah, yeah. Which is where you start. Yeah, no, I, and, and, and actually build a relationship. I don't know if I can build a relationship with, a, like, a bank 
anymore. I feel like before you also had, and correct me if I'm, I'm wrong, um, and we can wrap it up with this as well, where you went to a bank and the same um, uh, individuals helping you with your mortgages was going to be there 10, 15 years from now. Now I feel like every single time I step into a bank, I'm looking at somebody <laughs> else, right? And it's <laughs> kind of frustrating as a law firm. We do do a lot of banking and then we have to requalify ourselves with the tellers. It's not even with the mortgages uh, that like somebody else is there and, and we have to tell them, listen, we come here often enough and you're, it's very hard to build a relationship when they're all kind of playing musical chairs. Whereas with a broker, I feel like, you know, we've got a relationship going on. I can call you at any point and say, hey, Scott, like, I'm thinking of, you know, I've, I've uh, my first home. I'm thinking of my second home. I'm thinking of an investment property now. Now I need a credit line because my kid's going off to college and it's too expensive. OSAP's not covering it and I can't pay it, you know. So there's so many other things to it. Yeah, you're totally right. There's a lot of movement in the bank. People move up. People move on. Usually like a broker like myself, it's a career choice, whether I, you know, you know, I had a lot of movement in my career even, but I was always still a broker and a client doesn't care where I'm a broker. Um, if it's my own brokerage, which it is now, or if I worked for another one in the past, they cared because it was me. They wanted to talk to me. They already know. I know there's information. They don't have to re-explain it all, which is what that relationship is. So you're right. I think you're. That's a big problem the bank has. All right. Any any last words? Um, call me. <laughs> I'm gonna leave Scott Brown's uh, information uh, below. You can call him. You can send him an email. Um, if you've got any questions, it's always good to reach out and and kind of really understand uh, where your situation is before you make your next move. Thanks for joining us, Scott. Thanks, Harris. My pleasure. All the best. Take care.